Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 51 of Season 4 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast, where we take a hilarious and poignant journey through the 1989 Billy Crystal Meg Ryan rom-com, When Harry Met Sally, One Minute at a Time. I'm Rob, and joining me today, and hopefully all week, is Bubble 8 from It's Time to Rewind. Welcome back to the show, Bubble 8. Uh, it's good to be back. It, it's nice to have you back. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Do you want to do you want to tell everyone now why you wanted this this week, or we'll get to that during the course of the week? What do you prefer? Um, yeah, I, I can get it, bring in, uh, get into it now. I, you know, it, it's I've seen this movie just honestly just once before, but it, it really stuck out to me. And it's, uh, I watched it for my previous podcast, Film Wise, where. I would have a guest that would introduce me to a classic movie that I'd never seen before, and we would talk about that. And then they would also watch a superhero or comic book movie that they had never seen before. And, yeah, that I just immediately fell in love with this movie. And one thing that often stands out to me in a lot of these romantic comedy type movies is, like, the, the quirky best friend. And in this one, it's Carrie Fisher. And I I love... Carrie Fisher and pretty much everything that I've seen her in and whenever you were recruiting for this season I was I was like you know um I I don't have any minutes in specific but give me some good Carrie Fisher minutes and uh I, I think that's what you did I, I think you got them yeah you did yeah. it it worked out that way it's uh I'm, I'm glad I'm glad to to accommodate you know I try and sometimes, I, I, I don't know, sometimes it's better if you get minutes that you want to get. And sometimes I, I actually find the challenge of getting minutes that you don't want. Like personally, when, mm. when I'm going on someone else's show, I tell them, give me whatever you want. You know, I'll, I'll deal with it. <laughs> you know, so, you know, that, that's the way it is here. So minute 51 begins with the crowd going wild and ends with Sally asking Marie a question. So... We ended things on Friday with, uh, you know, the, the the New Year's Eve party. Harry and Sally uh, feel that they don't want to be inside. They they walk outside to the uh, to the patio, and they stand around there uh, while everyone's counting down. And we finish the countdown at the end of uh, Friday's minute. And today we begin with everyone, you know, screaming Happy New Year's and a lot of cheering in the background. Uh, the crowd is really ecstatic. We, you know, we hear the the song playing uh, "Old Lang Syne." Uh, we see five different couples that are embracing and kissing, you know, to to which I'm sure they did on purpose, you know, to make Harry and Sally feel even more uncomfortable about what's going on uh, around them at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think it works. You know, I'm glad I'm glad they did it the way that they did it. Um, you know, we, we see people that, that are really, really celebrating, and then they show us Harry and Sally who are looking at them and, you know, trying to figure out what they're supposed to be doing, which is one of the great yeah. things about this movie is they do that so well of making these characters, uh, on the one hand, want to fit in, and on the other hand, want to try and figure out, you know, how they're supposed to act the whole time. It, to me, it makes it mm-hmm. even feel. It makes it feel so much more realistic than your normal rom com, where it's all you know typical tropes that are you know uh, one after the other the whole way through. 
Yeah, and and I think one thing one of the things that Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal do so well is they're able to convey so much without any words. Just the way just their facial performances, how they look at each other, mm-hmm. and and this I I think they get you know a lot of movement a lot of moments like that throughout this entire week, but especially right here, just the way that they're just looking around and you can really see the conflict in their fra- in their faces right now because the, this is the point in the movie where they don't really know where this friendship is going they i think they they're both starting to feel the romantic tendencies but they're both terrified of actually crossing that line right Exactly, because they they don't want to, you know. It it goes with the, the 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 typical thoughts that people, you know, when when you're good friends, you don't want to ruin the friendship type of thing, you know. And mm-hmm. they've they've created based on on you know the fact that both of them were in uh, I guess failed relationships very recently that mm-hmm. you know they they both are are on the one hand scared to start another relationship, but on the other hand, you know, they have this new best friend who maybe there's a possibility that they, you know, might have something together with them. Who knows? I mean, we talked a little bit about this, uh, you know, towards the end of last week with when they were, you know, when they were dancing cheek to cheek, you know, they kept saying things to one another that you would say only to someone that you're so close to. And they both felt awkward about what they were saying about the way that they were acting because they don't know if they're supposed to be acting that way or not. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's the biggest question that this part of the movie keeps asking you know, as you said, where are we going from here? You know, are we supposed to stay yeah. friends? Are we supposed to, you know, not talk to each other? Are we supposed to, you know, see where this can go? You know, who knows? There's there's no way to do it. And, and they both do a great job of showing that their characters are feeling very, very awkward. You know, they're, they, they stare at each other. You see them even, even look into one another's eyes. You know, and you mm-hmm. get the impression that both of them are wondering, wait a second, you know, is this where I'm supposed to be right now? You know, wh- you know, is this the person I'm supposed to be with forever? Or, you know, is it just something temporary until I find something, you know, that I'm that, that I might be looking for? You know, because they, yeah. they, they both see the other as a great friend, but they don't see anything beyond that at this point. And that's that's the biggest question, you know, that. uh that happens. And then Harry is the first one to actually acknowledge that something needs to be done to break this little tension. And, you know, they, the two of them smile at one another and then, you know, they give like a little brief kiss uh, on the lips. Mm -hmm. And then, then you can see that they have, uh, then they each have a hug. Then they have a hug together, which the hug feels more realistic than the kiss itself. You know, the hug says, says a lot more, uh, I guess you could say that the hug is even more intimate than than the kiss was, you know, between the two of them. Yeah, it's like the the kiss is very much them trying to set boundaries, and then they go into the hug, and that's like whenever they're not looking at each other, that's where they allow themselves to to relax and let things go for a moment and just and enjoy the the embrace. Correct. And 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 then it's. I think it's interesting because the the film does like it it actually goes into a freeze frame. Well, okay, we'll get there, we'll get there in a second. Right. We'll get there in a second with the freeze frame. So the the first question I wanted to ask you is where do you think the whole idea of kissing at midnight 
on New Year's came from? Like, what, what, what do you, what do you know about that idea? You know, I, I hadn't really given it much thought. It, it well, like, what, seem, what's the reason behind it? You know, that type of thing. I think it's, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that it, it has to do with, I mean, the, the whole new year is about starting things over fresh and, you know, having new habits, new relationships, new, like it, it's a restarting, refreshing. So I think the kiss is like, you know, you're, you're starting fresh in a new relationship for people that are in relationships or trying to start relationships at this point. Okay. That that's part of it, but the, the, it's basically a superstition that the way that you ring in the new year will determine how the rest of your year will go. So if you're happily in love, kissing someone, whatever, then the idea is, is that, okay, you're going to have a year of lots of love and things like that. Okay. Obviously, uh, uh, COVID has, has put a little bit of a damper on that. <laughs> people, people don't do it as much now as they did just, uh, you know, two, three years ago from that perspective. Now um, it's the new year's elbow bump. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, so, I mean, there, there's an article in the, the, the New York times from 1863, which even, re which references it. Okay, it's it's an article about uh, it references the tradition as the, you know, people were celebrating in the city, specifically German immigrants, uh, some of who rushed into each other's arms and exchanged hearty kisses. So it's possible that this came from, you know, uh, a a tradition that that was started in Germany. Um, mm. a, during during the the 20th century. It actually became something very popular in pop culture, you know, because um, we see it all in a lot of movies and TV shows. Uh, this this movie is a perfect example of that. You know, it's it's something you I, I don't know. Have you ever been to a New Year's party where where people were you know where where you know they felt that everyone has to kiss one another? Uh, not that I can think of. I, I'm not exactly. I haven't. Person. Okay, I haven't either. But but. You know, when you see things on TV, even if you're just watching, you know, the ball drop or if you're or TV shows, movies, everything like that, everyone always makes a big deal about New Year's from the perspective that, OK, you have to kiss someone uh, at the stroke of midnight. You know, it, it sounds like yeah, Cinderella I, or something I think like that. I, you know? I went through that. I've, I've recently did a, a Friends rewatch and, and they have multiple New Year's Eve episodes. Right. And that's that's always a big plot point. Correct. Exactly. And I mean, there, there's even the, the superstition that it works backwards, meaning that single people, if they don't kiss someone at the beginning of the year, okay, they, they will think that this is a, uh, you know, this is going to foresee that, that their year is going to have, you know, they're going to be very lonely throughout the year. And, you know, they're, they're going to have a lot, a lot more trouble, uh, you know, in love with that type of thing. Um, there's, it's also related to the Scottish tradition of, uh, Hagmene, excuse me for mispronouncing that if I probably did. Um, it's a, the traditional word for the last day of the year. And during the Hagmene party, it was customary to try kissing everyone in the room as the bells ring at the stroke of midnight. Um, I, I can understand why people don't try and kiss everybody in the room. <laughs> you know, that would be a, a, a little too much, <laughs> especially nowadays, 
you know, I think uh, I think there'd be too many lawsuits if people were, were doing that. If they were running around the room uh, kissing everyone that they could. Yeah, I think that's funny. And I also think it's funny since I brought up Friends earlier that that was also a brief pull-up point in – it wasn't New Year's Eve related, but it was whenever Chandler was trying to hide his relationship with Monica and he gives her a kiss and then he realizes that they're not supposed to be in a relationship and so he kisses all of the other female cast members <laughs> to make it sound like that's something that he's doing. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Can, can you think of any movies that have like a famous New Year's kiss besides When Harry Met Sally? Uh, and, it doesn't, and it doesn't have to be a romantic comedy. Oh, I, I know that there's I, I feel like there's a couple like really big ones, but I, I can't I can't bring them up right now. OK, so besides the on the search that I did besides Harry Met Sally, the thing that came up the most is a kiss in the Godfather part two. <laughs> OK, because Michael Corleone actually gives his brother Fredo uh, the fury, the, the kiss of death uh, on New Year's Eve at a party. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so shout out to the uh, Godfather Minute out there, you know Alex Robinson and his brother. Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe maybe they can tell us more a little bit more about how that works. Uh, you know, but I just thought it was very funny that you know I was looking up something looking for romance, and you know when you talk about kiss on New Year's Eve, they they talk about the Godfather. So not what I would have expected. <laughs> <laughs> so as although that, that does that does fall into the superstition because that is going to be how the rest of his year goes or what's, you know, not much of the year left for it. For Fredo. That's true. Good point. So, right. They, so they finished their kiss. And uh, as you pointed out earlier, uh, it ends with a freeze frame. Okay. Which this is the first time in this movie that there's actually a freeze frame. Um, I won't spoil if there are more along the way. We'll have to get there. But right now, I mean, every time that they have a stop right before one of these documentary couples, it, it, it there's a stop, but there's no freeze frame. But here they, they it's as if they're they're taking a picture of that moment of the two of them together before they you know move on to the next uh, documentary couple. So I, I like the way that they did that. OK, I'm assuming you know what a freeze frame is, right? Yeah. I think it's it's most typically thought of at the end of like uh, 80s sitcoms where it'll have the the freeze frame on a big happy moment and then cut to black or cut to credits. Right. OK. The, the idea of a freeze frame, obviously, is that you just show a single frame of contact content that's just repeatedly being shown on the screen and it like freezes the action. Uh, so that it resembles a type of, uh, you know, still photograph or something like that. And, I mean, there's there's a lot of examples of, of movies and TV shows that have used it. Um, do, do you know, you have any clue when the first freeze frame was ever used in a movie? Uh, no, I've, I wouldn't have any idea, although... I would imagine it's it would be fairly early on because I, I feel like that would be something that's relatively easy to do. Okay, so here, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question differently. Who do you – okay, you, you know who the director is who did the first freeze frame? Um, I mean, it's, So what famous director do you think would have 
uh, quote unquote invented. It's not sure. They're no one. Sure, they're not sure if, it, if this person invented the idea of of a freeze frame. But but the most prominent first free freeze frame was in one of his uh, movies. Uh, I, I and I will like tell I, you that you're I, correct. I'll probably go. I'll tell you that you're correct that it is in the early uh, age of cinema. Yeah, I I definitely figured that it was you know silent era. Um, as, as far as famous directors, I only know a handful, but uh, I, I mean, the one that I would go with would be um, like George Millier. No, it's not that early. Not that early. It was mm-hmm. it was Hitchcock. Hitchcock did ah. it in his 1928 film Champagne. Hmm. Okay. Um, there's there's another famous one that that everyone knows about, and you know maybe hopefully at some point over the next few seasons, it's a movie that I would like to. To, to cover this way. Um, Frank Capra's uh, 1946, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, when you have the first appearance of, of George Bailey, you know, when, when he's uh, showing, you know, how big he wants the, the, the suitcase to be. And they do a freeze frame to show us the, the, the face, you know, so that so Clarence can get a good look at the face of the person whose life he's going to learn about. Okay. Um, d- director George George Roy Hill uh, quite often used uh, um, freeze frames in his movies, usually depicting he would usually do it right before a character was about to die, but they wouldn't show the death. So, for instance, you have that in uh, The World According to Garp, um, you have that in the movie The Color of Money, and you have the most famous one is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You know, where you see the characters getting ready to, to you know, to, for their last stand, I guess you can say. Um, famously, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show ended with a freeze frame of her always, ta- you know, she tossed her hair in the air. And that's how she did it. But my favorite version of a freeze frame is from, uh, I've, have you ever seen the, the episode, I think there's only like six episodes of Police Squad? <laughs> I was that's I that's exactly what I had in my head that I was going to bring up if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I love Police Squad and the Naked Gun. Yes. So that, just for anyone who who isn't in the know, what they do there is is they they, they do a freeze frame, but it's not a real freeze freeze frame. It's the characters just stopping to move, and like someone who is you know pouring coffee, the coffee continues to move. But the person is just standing there, you know, there in one of them, there's like a, a convict who's escaping, but everyone's standing around as statues. Um, they're, they're another one, they have a chimpanzee throwing things in the middle, you know, where, where everyone else has, has just stopped in their tracks. So I, no, I like, it, I like the way they and do they that. make a, <laughs> and they make an effort to like, they, you can tell that they're not, they're not like, really trying to human statue it. They're just trying to hold their pose, but you know, they, they make an effort. Like they have the big blinks. They, they look around. You can tell that they're just, you know, making, making it clear that they're just standing still, but they're not doing a, the best job of standing still. And that's, that what, that's what makes it so funny. Yes, for sure. That really works well. Uh, so then after we finish with the freeze frame, we get a, Another... There, there is one other thing okay. that I that I do want to point out with the freeze sure. frame. I think that that's you mentioned that this is the first time that they had a freeze frame, and I do think that it's appropriate, especially at this point in the movie, because it's almost like 
they are trying to freeze this this part of their friendship it, it's like they're trying to freeze their friendship in this moment yes. and not take it further and because uh, they they want to stay friends and not become a couple yet right oh that, that that's a great way to look at it i didn't even think about that see i was thinking about the fact that okay you know we know from this point anyone who's seen the movie that there is exactly another 365 days to this movie you know to these characters lives that we're going to experience because you know the the climactic uh scene of this movie takes place on new year's eve uh, a year from now so presumably Mm. this is right now the change between uh, 1987 and 1988 and then next year, it'll be the change between 88 and 89, you know, because the movie came out in the summer of 89. Uh, so that, that, that's the presumption that we can make. You know, we can't, we can't know for yeah. sure. But uh, that, that, that's what's assumed. And they, they do that really well. And then when they finish the, the, the freeze frame, they move into the next documentary couple. And I've always loved this couple because, you know, it's, it's another... Uh, one of the things that they do with all these couples is is they're all very, very different and they have different personalities. But at least for me, and I've, I've heard from other people, it's just, they have similar feelings. They, they always remind you of, of older couples that you know, you know, who act this mm-hmm. way. Sometimes the wife doesn't say anything. Sometimes the man doesn't say anything. Sometimes the two of them don't know how to shut up. You know, it, it just, it, it's always very different the way that they do it. And in this particular case, you know, we have... The, a man and a woman who are sitting there. The the man is played by a, a, an actor named Aldo Rossi, who was born in 1926, and he passed away in 1992 at the age of 66. Uh, so just, just four years later. So he's in his early 60s here, and he only has one IMDb credit uh, for this movie. That's it. But the woman who plays his wife has 66 credits uh, on IMDb and these 66 credits only started in 1987 meaning two years before this movie came out her her name was uh, Donna Hardy she was born in 1912 and passed away in 2011 at the age of 98 have you seen her in any other movies can you recognize her from she anything? looked familiar she looked very familiar to me I, I feel like she she reminds me a bit of Rosemary Harris, but um, I I couldn't place her and, and I didn't look her up on IMDb. So I, I'm curious if, if you call out anything that's uh, that I'm going to go have that aha moment. OK, so the <laughs> I, I found there, there are three films that that um, that that I am familiar with that, that I actually can think of who the character was that she played. Um, the first one is, uh, from the, the movie, uh, Universal, uh, Soldier. She's, she's in that. Then the second one is she was in Superbad. Great. Mm-hmm. And the third one was her role in the movie, The Running Man. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you uh, recognize, I mean, you familiar, those... are you familiar with The Running Man? Um, I'm, I'm aware of it, but I've, I've never seen any of those three movies. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so she has a very famous quote in the movie The Running Man. So you have Richard Dawson, who's playing the uh, the MC for this uh, game show, I guess you could say, where they're trying to kill people or where they're trying to. It's it's you know you have 
uh, people that are, it's like the dangerous game type of thing where you have these, mm. uh, hunters trying to, to find, uh, criminals more or less. But the idea is that they turn it into a game show type of thing. So Killian says there are still two, there are still two crack stalkers out there, Dynamo and Fireball. Who do you think will make the next kill? And so he has, he's, uh, sorry, he's taken a person from the audience and it happens to be this woman. And he asks her, okay, who do you think is going to make the next kill? And she goes, oh boy, that's a tough one. And then he goes, come on, you can do it. Who do you think? She says, okay, I think the next kill will be made by Ben Richards, which is Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, right? And everyone is obviously only betting on the stalkers. You know, they're, they're quote unquote, the good guys, as opposed to, uh, he goes, Agnes, Richards is a runner. You got to pick a stalker. And again, her famous line in this movie is, I could pick anyone I choose, and I choose Ben Richards. That boy is one mean mother. <laughs> you know, it's something you don't expect to hear from a woman like this. <laughs> and they, they, she, you know, and I only noticed the connection when I was doing research for this, uh, for this minute. When I saw that she appeared, you know, like I was like, okay, what movies has she been in? And I saw Running Man, and I was like, wait a second, who is that? And then, you know, it didn't just like hit me. That she is this woman, you know, who who has this very famous scene there. So I I thought it was great, you know. And I mean, I'm also surprised about the fact that basically, according to what I found, and there could be more information out there that I couldn't find, uh, her her acting career began very late in her life. She was in her 70s when she started acting, and you know, she has this bit part in When Harry Met Sally. So yeah. I looked her up and I, I think I might I found a couple roles that I might have recognized her at. She she had a bit pull a bit part in the Truman Show, I think uh, as an old woman, probably like one of the people watching Truman on TV. Mm-hmm. And then um, she also in the the series Charmed, she played well elderly Paige. Oh okay. And uh, my. I didn't like the the show, but my wife has watched it uh, multiple times, so I might have seen her in that. Okay, that could be. That's fair. So, but I, again, I like the way that that uh, you know, I, I like seeing the contrast because there, you know, she's playing the, this woman at a game show, and here she's just sitting there being uh, filmed for a documentary, and she just talks her head off the whole time. You know, mm-hmm. she her husband barely says anything. You know, she goes well. He was the boy, head counselor of the boys' camp, and I was the head counselor at the girls' camp. And they had a social one night, and he walked across the room. I thought he was coming to talk to my friend Maxine, because people were always crossing rooms to talk to Maxine. But he came. Wait, no, but I he, love that line. Yeah, <laughs> true. But he was coming to talk to me, and he said, and then we have, I love the cue. And then the, the man sitting next to her goes, I'm Ben Small of the Coney Island Smalls. <laughs> and then she answers <laughs> at that moment i knew i knew the way you know a good melon <laughs> so it's again it reminds me of you know couples that 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 i did know at some point growing up where the woman would always talk and the man barely said anything and when he did say something it was you know just to interject in the middle for something and you know and i think i think it's great the way that they do it um, yeah, I think the timing works out well, and, and I also love her line about the melons. And yes, <laughs> like I've, I, I knew he was good the way that you know a good melon. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> do you, Do you know how to check a good melon? 
Um, I know it involves thumping it uh, a lot of times because you can you can basically tell how uh, like if it's like a, a more hollow thump that that means it's drier, and if it's like a more solid thump, then it's more um, you know it's fuller, moister. Okay. All right. I this, believe that's it. Okay. That, that's part of it. I mean, basically, I, I found a, a website that has five tips for, for picking a ripe melon every time. So the first thing is you need to check the melon for defects to make sure that it's not damaged on the outside. There are no bruises, soft spots, uh, moldy patches, cracks, things like that. Then you have to check the color of the skin. So, you know, if you're looking for a watermelon or a honeydew, something like that, you should pick something that has a dull looking appearance if it's shiny it usually means that it's underripe so you should be looking for for something that, that the color is a little dull uh for cantaloupes and and musk melons you should be looking for something that has like an uh a golden or orange in color if it's has if it's underlying green or white then that's usually a bad sign uh, the third thing you need to see is size does matter so if you you should pick up a few melons and see how they feel and choose a melon that feels heavy for its size because that would also indicate that there's a lot more juice inside and that it's, uh, you know, juicier. Mm. Uh, then you're supposed to, as you mentioned, the tapping. Um, and you're supposed to, mostly if it's a watermelon, you're supposed to tap it. If you tap it with just the palm of your hand, if you hear that it's hollow, then that's the perfect kind you want. You want something that feels like it's reverberating the sound on the inside. And uh, the fifth thing you're supposed to do is to smell it. Uh, if you have like cantaloupes or honeydew, things like that, what you should do is if you find that, that the smell is fresh and fragrant with a hint of like sweetness to it, that's supposed to be a, a good sign for a ripe melon or a, yeah, ripe melon, something that's, that's ready to be eaten. So one of the things that I found really, really interesting by listening to the commentary on this particular uh, minute, you know, the commentary with uh, with Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron and Billy Crystal is when this couple is shown, you know, the the, the Ben Small, you know, couple, the, you know, that they met at Coney Island, or, um, Ben Small from Coney Island. You know, um, this is actually the story of how Nora Ephron's parents got together. Oh, and interesting. That, that just like, it blew me away to listen to, to hear that because, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to do throughout this, this show, and I've only managed one other time, is to find out who the real story is, is about. You know, the, the first couple that we, that we were shown at the beginning, we know is, are the parents of, uh, you know, Alan Horn, who was a good friend of, of Rob Reiner and who was one of the producers in the movie. And this is the, you know, I was, I was hoping that the commentary every single time they would say, oh, this is the story from this couple or this is the story from that couple because online you really can't find anything about these things. And in the yeah. commentary, so Nora Ephron mentions that this is how her parents uh, got together, which, which is great, you know, because it, it gives the, the story uh, that much more of uh, relevance to, to the movie, you know, that, yeah that her parents, you know, were both counselors at, at camps and they, you know, met each other. And apparently, you know, her father was, wanted to go out with, uh, or she, her mother thought that her father wanted to go out with Maxine, but instead, uh, you know, cause her parents' names were uh, Henry Efron and Phoebe Efron. Oh, and, and they were both still alive. Efron's. Right. And her, her mother, her father was still alive at the time this movie came out in 19, cause he lived till 1992. 
he passed away at the age of 81 in 1992. Her mother uh, died in uh, 1971. So she, she unfortunately didn't, didn't make it for this, but, uh, the, the both, they were both, uh, movie writers. They were writers for, for, they, they wrote, uh, the, the script for Carousel. There's no business for like show business. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, very interesting. You know, that they, they tell us who these people are. So yeah. great, great little bit of trivia to add in there. Mm-hmm. Basically that that's what we have for the documentary couple. And then the, the scene shifts and we get a quick shot of the reason you're here this week um, of, mm-hmm. of Sally and her good friend Marie walking down the street. Uh, we can tell it's in the middle of uh, New York somewhere, presumably, presumably Manhattan. Uh, they're, they're walking through the street and Sally turn, uh, turns to her and says, you sent flowers to yourself. Now, one of the things I love about the, this movie, and I've mentioned this numerous times, is that many times we get characters uh, who are having a conversation, but it sounds as if we are catching them in the middle of a conversation, mm-hmm. which which works so well because it basically tells us that that you know these characters are in the middle of this conversation. We're, we're you know we're we're interrupting them. That type of thing. We're, we're not getting there exactly as their conversation begins. You know, they've been talking for, you know, however, however long beforehand. And, you know, we're picking up with them as their conversation continues. Yeah, the, I think the, the other thing, like, the, it's, this movie does so many things so well. And the, the dialogue in general is one of them because it does so many just different and interesting things with dialogue. And like you said, the the fact that we're not like starting at the start of a conversation, we're jumping in at the the relevant point. Correct. And they do a they do a good job of, like you said, making it feel like we're interrupting a conversation or we're like just jumping in in the middle of a conversation, but we're not really missing anything that's not relevant to the story either. Right. Exactly. Right. I really like the way that you do that. So, did you ha- do you have anything else you want to say about this minute before we get into the script? Um, no, I, I think you know that this part's really we'll we'll get into the meat of it tomorrow. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so the 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 script is very different from everything that happened. Well, part of the things that happened here. So, first of all, we have uh, you know it says Harry and Sally kiss. It is very awkward. It should be, should it be platonic? Should it be more? And this is the break, and it is slightly uncomfortable. And then the two of them warmly say to each other, Happy New Year. And then it doesn't even mention anything about a freeze frame in there. But then the documentary couples, it's completely different. You know, the, this couple that we saw today are, don't appear here at all at this point in the, in the script. Maybe they'll appear later. We'll have to wait and see. But it's it's something that they did earlier that they also cut out of the script where they had short, quick cuts between different couples as they're like telling just little parts of stories. You know, they jump from couple A to couple B to couple C and then A again, stuff like that. So I'll just go quickly through the dialogue here, what they do again. So couple A, it says the woman says, my mother wanted me to meet him. She knew his mother from church. And then the man says, no, it was my brother who thought of it. And then they go to couple two. Uh, where a woman says, my brother said, there's a new man at the office. He is very tall. 
And then we get to a couple three, and the man says, She was going out with my friend Michael. He brought her my he brought her to my sister's wedding. And then we go back to the first couple, where the woman once again says, So we were supposed to meet at his brother's wedding. The man goes, My cousin's wedding. But we didn't because his brother didn't marry that girl. Remember her? The one from the telephone company? And then we get another couple, and it says, My Aunt Tess called one night. She just rented the spare room to a nice young man, a dentist. And then we get a fifth couple, and the man says, mm. I was going out with her sister. I liked her sister all right, but then I saw her. And then we go back to the first couple again, where the woman says, So then one day we were all at the beach. The man goes, Jonas Beach. The woman says, Rockaway Beach. And we met. Now, I'm so glad they cut these out. This is just, yeah. it's too much. I like the succinctness of the way that the couples are. You know, we're getting a little story from one couple. You don't have to try and remember, okay, this couple said this, this couple said that. It's just a little too much. Yeah, especially with having them spaced out so far. Yeah. And having to try and remember three, like, well, in this case, you know, five pieces of story. Yes. Over... 15 minutes before he gets the next five pieces no 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 they're even different that, that's the thing i i don't based based on what we can tell it's different couples that are like 15 minutes away it's just right now in the, this this one minute you, know, you get these five different couples telling little bits and pieces but i like that the story feels a little more complete in the movie yeah, yeah it's, it's a distinct it's like you're, story you're still getting you're still not getting the entire story of Correct. of their of of their couplehood, but it you know we're getting just a little piece of it, but that little piece has its own beginning, middle, and end. Correct, that's true. All right, great. So um, every Monday we have a segment called Meg Ryan Monday, where my guests will give their top five Meg Ryan movies, Meg Ryan performances. Excuse me. So Bubba, what are your five? Favorite Meg Ryan performances. All right, so um, I I do want to mention one thing that I thought was surprising, and I I don't remember it enough, but it it kind of blew my mind that Meg Ryan did a voice for the uh, the '80s cartoon Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Oh wow! She was the voice of. Dr. Blight, which is like one of the the recurring, like one of the big recurring villains in that show. And is I, that an honorable mention, I, or that's your number five? That that's an honorable no, mention. Okay, I, I just had to bring that up, like whenever I saw that, because I I very much remember Captain Planet. That that's one of those shows that I didn't like it, but I watched it because it was the '80s and you only had three choices, and I think that was like the best choice of the three channels. Okay. That's fair. So I do remember watching that, and I, it kind of blew my mind that that she was a voice on that show. Uh, my number five is another voice voice role, and that's uh, uh, Anastasia mm -hmm. in Anastasia. Yeah. And that's that's a movie that I came to later in life. I didn't see it whenever I was a kid, but my wife was a fan, and she introduced me to it. And I, I watched it maybe you know a handful of years ago. Oh wow! And I. Uh, and you know it, it's a cute movie, and mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's Don Bluth, and and I love Don Bluth's animation. Um, I I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my number four is You've Got Mail. It's uh, 
you know, one of her strings of the the romantic comedies. And I, I think that is my favorite, more or less my favorite of that era, where where it's like the, um, you know, the the paint by numbers almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number three is going back and, and is going to inner space. Uh, that, that's another one that I think I I came into later. I, I think I watched it maybe somewhere between five and ten years ago. Oh, wow. So relatively late. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I did enjoy that. And surprisingly, that was one that I just you know randomly decided to watch on my own. Like I didn't watch it for a podcast or for a review or anything. I just watched it to watch it. Uh, my number two is this movie, When Harry Met Sally. It's I I just really love it so much and and it's it is at the same time it's like the quintessential romantic comedy but whenever you really look at it i think it does do a lot of things differently than a lot of the uh, you know the very tropey romantic comedies because right. it, it it does just do enough things differently and it, it really gets into you know the so much of it is about them building this friendship mm-hmm. and we don't get into the relationship until the very end. And my number one is actually Kate and Leopold. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that one, it's just such a fun movie and it's, it's so weird with this like sci-fi time traveling twist. And uh, Hugh Jackman is just such a great character as, Leopold is this time traveler from the past and he integrates into future society relatively quickly and relatively well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Meg Ryan is, is a great foil for him too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Great. Thank you very much for that. So you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you, where they can find you. Uh, <laughs> sure. And my most active project right now is my podcast. It's time to rewind where I go through time loop movies and TV shows one loop at a time. Uh, whenever this comes out, I'll, I think it'll be right in between seasons. I'll, I'll have just finished up my Buffy and Angel season where I took a look at, uh, Buffy's episode Life Serial from season six and Angel's episode Time Bomb from season five, as well as a handful of other Buffy and Angel episodes. Um, that are not time loop related and um, starting in August, I'll be going into the next season, which is, it's not exactly a time loop, but I I feel like the the character is kind of in his own time loop and I will be covering Memento one scene at a time. Very cool. Excellent. And finding me is very simple. Just do a quick search for Movie Around Minute. You can find me on Facebook, find me on Twitter, or you can go directly to my website, Movie Around Minute. Dot com. And I mentioned this at the end of last week, but once again, uh, everyone can find me also. I was just on the Bowfinger Minute last week with a friend of the show, uh, Alan Sanders from The Wilder Ride. He and I had a great time talking about five minutes of Bowfinger. This was part of the group uh, project, the sixth group project that has been done by Movies by Minute Community. Uh, Alan and I did minutes 21 to 25, so you can go 
to bowfigureminute.com, or you can download those episodes anywhere uh, that you find podcatchers. And I, I, you can find a lot of different uh, movies by minutes uh, hosts uh, popping in uh, week by week over there. And, and I think at some point in the future, we'll even get to Bubba. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's great. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll talk about that later in this week. We'll, we'll figure that out. <laughs> yeah. All right. So until tomorrow, I'll have what she's having. I'll have what she's having. Gave me a thrill with all your faults. I love you still. It had to be you. Wonderful you. Had to be you.